Hello, everyone, and welcome to Super Excited, a podcast about blockchain technology, cryptocurrency, and technology in general. I am Mike, the facilitator of the podcast. We have been recording a few episodes already and planning to publish them as we go, but I felt like it was important for you to get to know your host, Stefan Roost. As such, I organized a quick interview with him, and this is what this episode is about. Stefan is a serial entrepreneur who worked for a lot of big names in the industry. Uh, he's uh, worked in a lot of different countries with a, a lot of very, very smart people. And that's what we'll talk about today. This and his vision for this podcast, what he's trying to achieve, but also some of his ideas about blockchain technology and decentralization. So without further ado, let's get started. Hey, Stefan, uh, I have a few questions for you. And let's start with the simplest one. Can you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Stefan Roost. I'm currently the founder and CEO of Laguna Labs. Uh, Laguna Labs is dedicated to building out an ecosystem on top of a layer one blockchain that is really focused on commerce. I am a big believer in the peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash system um, and the nature of the white paper that was drafted and written up by Satoshi Nakamoto. And I feel that one single chain can't handle the volume today. And in order to make commerce frictionless and affordable around the world, we need a layer one blockchain that is focused on that, number one. And number two is also enabling multi-chain interactions. That's who I am. That's what I'm doing. And that's my passion for being. Can you... Talk to me a little bit about your career so far and what led you to create uh, Laguna Labs. So I, you know, I, I've been a, a citizen of the globe. Um, I was born in, in Asia, um, in greater China. I then moved to Europe. I um, then lived in the U.S., And then moved to China, lived in the heartland of China, lived in the heartland of the U.S., I suppose the heartland of technology, I'd say, versus the heartland of the U.S. Um, and as a result, I feel very much a part of the planet, of the whole world, not necessarily just one specific nation or state um, as such. Um, Yeah, you know, uh, as a result, I always feel connected with other people that are immigrants that have moved to other nations, um, have set up base outside of their home, if you will, for lack of a better name. So I felt a lot strong connection with that. And I call ourselves Global G, the uh, Generation G, sorry, Generation Globe, Generation Global. That's sort of what I, I generally like. Um, so I've connected with a lot of people like that. My career path, I've always looked for ways to connect people together. And I've always had this strong um, relationship with technology. I remember I first got onto the internet when it was still with CompuServe. Um, it helped me through university, that's for sure. Um, and I really felt the power and I could see through the power of what that information hub could provide to everybody around the world. And as a result, I also liked the frontier element 
by finding new technologies and trying to populate or create a populous solution using that technology. And as a result, I spent most of my career in new frontiers, building out and making accessible the internet and solutions on the internet. Um, I started off in satellite broadcasting, so media, that was sort of my first technology. Um, it was still really early on satellite TV. Nobody really knew about it. Um, and we were trying to build out sort of a CNN equivalent in Europe. And I was fortunate enough to be one of the employees, uh, one of the earlier employees there. I can't even remember the number, but we were 50 different nations represented in this uh, European business channel at Limelight Studios. And yeah, that was an amazing journey, which then led to going back to school, learning about the internet and studying crazy things like GPS. So new frontiers, new technologies, again, um, teleportation. I was really inspired by the movie, The Fly with Jeff Goldblum. I don't know if you've watched it where he tries to build yeah. a teleportation engine and then gets reassembled with a fly. And so it's a bit of a hybrid between the Metamorphosis book as well as modern technology of teleportation as we witness in movies like Star Trek, etc. And so I was really inspired by that and tried to write a white paper on what it would take to decompose a body and then reassemble a body and the atoms uh, around a physical uh, human being and all the organs in that. Um, anyway, that's just one example of what I felt and what really enamored me into technology and new frontiers. Um, you know, the internet was really a big part of it. My white paper, um, my thesis for my graduation degree was around online flower delivery solutions. Um, <laughs> I did. I did. Uh, what else did I write up? I wrote up a white paper on object-oriented design, which is a programming methodology. Um, and that really structured my mind and gave me the foundation of how computation and how software is being built and how to streamline the development of software. Um, and, and that sort of opened up a lot of eyes. The Internet itself was just being born around that time. And CompuServe was one of the main accesses to the internet. This was all pre-Netscape. And then when Netscape came out, the browser, that was such a eye-opener and allowed us to really see the colors of what the internet could be providing. Um, and yeah, then I got into trading. I you set up accounts online so we could connect with people around the other end of the world, emails. Um, and all the different protocols that grew out of that. But the biggest revolution was really mobile. At the time when the browser sort of started growing, mobile phones started growing as well. Um, and everybody still was very skeptical. Why do I need a mobile phone? I don't need one. And it was just to communicate at the time. So you could stay in touch with friends. It wasn't necessarily about gaming. It wasn't about messaging. It was just about staying in touch when you were on the road, when you were stuck in a traffic jam. And so those were examples. Um, and I got involved with building out infrastructure for that in China, a whole new four, four different cities across China, we were building out mobile networks, mobile phones were being distributed via retail networks 
as well as SIM cards associated with those. So building an end-to-end service for mobile connectivity in four cities in China. That was really frontier, um, new grounds, new opportunities. Um, and it was Wild West. I mean, it was really, we started off, I remember, we had something like 60% bad debt rate in the first months because everybody was just scamming the SIM cards and using uh, and racking up bills under fake identities. So, you know, this was pre prepaid SIM card. So it was really early on. Um, and so we had to come up with solutions. How do we qualify? How do we identify which retailers are selling to bad debt customers? Okay, we then identified them. How do we now verify which are the SIM card, the, the right distributors? How do we promote them? How do we reward them? How do we do checks and balances in place before we allow for bad debt? We immediately dropped the bad debt from 60% down to something like 20%. And then, mm-hmm. thanks God to the innovation around prepaid SIM cards, um, that was amazing. Then all of a sudden, we didn't have bad debt, and we could sell them everywhere like hotcakes. However, at that time, we were a new emerging mobile operator that was going up against the incumbent. The incumbent was a national operator and was tightly coupled with the national regulator. So we were basically going up against the regulator. So that sort of grew me some tough skin and allowed me to build out the resistance of what it means to take on a regulator um, and the incumbent at the same time. Anyway, that was sort of somewhat successful. We sold that to China Unicom that wanted to go public in 2000 or 1999. Um, and that was a successful venture. I then got into, was still enamored by the internet. And this was the dot-com days. Dot-com was booming. Uh, We saw a whole bunch of, end of 1999, if any of you can still remember, um, there were companies popping up left, right, and center. They were doing IPOs, not ICOs, it was IPOs. Um, And they were raising an amazing amount of money from Wall Street. Um, And so, that really sort of captivated me. I was in the internet all the time anyway, so I saw the opportunities. I knew all these service providers. I understood what the infrastructure needed, uh, what was the type of infrastructure needed in order to scale these services and really make them available. So I then got involved with Sun Microsystems. Um, I met some team members um, that then had a small venture group. And so we, they were the dot in the dot com. Um, super smart people, some of the smartest people I met uh, in the ecosystem and was really enamored by the team there. And they were looking for mobile expertise. They had this little software programming language called Java. <laughs> what could you do with Java on mobile phones? And given my background in mobile phones, given my understanding of software during my you know, formative years at uh, university, I felt that that was a good mix. And the team there felt reciprocally, you know, I, I, they, we shared that feeling. And so it was um, reciprocated. And so I really joined a small team, about six people, run by a guy named Jonathan Schwartz. And we, I was sort of working to grow the mobile ecosystem. And Brian Sutphin and John Fowler, really good team of super smart people. Um, 
and then worked with guys like Alan Brenner and David Rivas and Andy. I mean, really great people to really grow the ecosystem. What does it take to build a Java virtual machine and put them on all the different device manufacturers? And remember, there were hundreds of device manufacturers. There were Samsung, there was NEC, there were the mobile operators that would spec the handsets that would go to market. There was Nokia, there was Ericsson, there was Sony. There was all these different Motorola was still there. There was different suppliers from Qualcomm, etc. So how do we have a consistent virtual machine that runs on all these devices so that any software developer can build an app and have them presented and displayed and commercialized on top of all of these billions of mobile phone users using a common language? And that was Java. And J2RE became the Java, J2ME, sorry. It was Java 2 for mobile edition. And we were deploying those on all the handsets around the world and grew that to a significant chunk of business uh, over the course of seven years. Then in 2007, the iPhone came around. Um, (laughs) We were always beholden to operators and handset manufacturers that would spec out, and particularly the mobile operators that would then spec out the restrictions and the, compli- the, you know, the compliance and the requirements associated with how big an app can be that can be provisioned over a mobile network using the airwaves of the operator. They restricted it usually to 70 kilobytes at the time. So if you think about it, your apps that you download today are now 200 megabytes plus. Right. Right? And that's not with the content in it. And so that was sort of just some of the ideas and, and examples that took place. But the big innovation was really virtual machines, Java virtual machines. And if you think about it in the blockchain again today, we have EVFs, Ethereum virtual machines that sit on multiple different blockchains. So Java virtual machine, I see a lot of similarities again um, in, in that market. And that's what's really interesting to me and why I'm doing what I'm doing today. Um, yeah, and then the iPhone came out, that changed the game. Uh, at Sun, we tried to, we acquired a operating system built on Java, and we then worked with a handset manufacturer to launch a competing product to the iPhone, uh, because iPhone would not support Java at the time. And so that was sort of some intrigue into the backdoor handling and dealings of how to get a phone to market, and how Silicon Valley worked. Anyway, we launched the phone, announced it. Uh, We wanted to develop it. However, we were super unlucky because, remember, this was the time of 2007, 2008. The telco bust started to happen. The financial services industry started to crumble. And those were big revenue generators for Sun Microsystem, which then required a reallocation and a focus on revenue across the company. There was a team of us that believed in Sun that the market was going to grow from a retail perspective. Consumers were driving the adoption and the growth in technology, no longer the enterprise. It was no longer companies buying you the newest and the best computers. It was individuals that were going out and buying it on their own with their own budgets. And that's what made a significant difference in the marketplace. And there was a big disagreement within the leadership at Sun and sort of the core team that was really growing the mobile business at Sun. So some of us decided to leave. I was one of them. And I grew a developer ecosystem because I knew all the people building these dApps. 
And so we would organize, I built a company that would arrange developer hackathons around the world. So how do you aggregate developers to build for your platform? Your platform is only as successful as the content on there. The content is being built by software developers. So how do we get the software developers to highlight core features and functionalities in your product, number one, and number two, build amazing experiences using those features for the end users? And that is what we set out to build. We were organizing 30 hackathons a year around the world in all the large major cities for the world's largest technology companies around there. And that's when I got introduced to Bitcoin. (laughs) There we are. Yeah, there we are. Exactly. So one of the developers in my network living in Latin America or middle America, actually, asked to be paid in Bitcoin. And I said, what the hell is Bitcoin? So I looked it up and I found a Bitcoin J wallet. That's a Java written, a wallet in Java. And so, okay, I know that. And so then I really got intrigued and I know some of the people behind um, that development process. And so that resulted in then me moving forward and, and having a look and buying on eBay my first Bitcoin using PayPal in the 2012 timeframe. And it was amazing. I mean, this was before it was banned on eBay and before PayPal banned it. And so it worked in those days. I think it was still too early for people to know what this actually was. So we actually uh, didn't think much about it. Nine months later, I then talked to that same developer again. Oh, now you can pay me in Bitcoin, right? And so then I looked to pay him in Bitcoin and noticed Mm -hmm. that the price had gone from a $5 range to about a $300 range. And so, yeah, sure, I can pay you. It's much cheaper for me now, too, because it was dollar denominated and I had more big, I had needed less Bitcoin in order to pay him. And so that's what really then got me sold. And I felt now we need to grow a Bitcoin developer community. How do we grow that? How do we organize hackathons around Bitcoin? And, And sort of that was sort of a real sort of set in time. And that got me rolling into the crypto and Web3 world to where I am today. I had some intermediate stops, met some amazing characters on the way, some true entrepreneurs growing and leading in this frontier um, and, and had some amazing meetings with some of the smartest, most passionate um, and committed individuals around there. Um, I stopped over being the CEO of Bitcoin.com in the middle um, before actually trying to tokenize the planet and save the planet by doing tokenization of the planet and then resulting in Laguna, where I felt we need to get back to the core roots of what peer-to-peer electronic cash system means. I did a lot of that at Bitcoin.com, where we grew to 30 million wallets, 500,000 vendors, um, already out there. How do we now get this back on track? What I didn't realize was that people don't want to spend in the native utility token. They want stable coins. That's something that they can relate to. That was one of the best user experience improvements in crypto, um, in my view, over the last sort of decade, if you will, of history, the history of crypto. Why? Because it provides stability. No matter what, the end user likes that element of stability, number one. Number two is you do not want to be the person that spent the 10,000 Bitcoins buying those pizzas, which today's value would be $200 million. You don't want to be that person. 
And that was the second reason behind that. And so how do we now build out Laguna as the place for making commerce and global trade a reality? Uh, and what does it take to do that? And that's what we've set ourselves out to do. That is a new frontier. Um, and, and that frontier, and that's sort of what's keeping me going. That's my passion. I like foraging into new frontiers. Um, and so that's sort of my reason for being. And I like paving new waves, new ways um, not always the easiest to do, but it's definitely the most exhilarating, fun, and meeting, and, and represents the opportunity to meet some of the greatest people and work alongside people that share that same vision and passion. If anyone does a bit of research on the internet about Stefan Roos, they will usually find you during your days at Bitcoin.com, right? Yeah. So can you... Tell me a bit more about your experience there and how it may have paved the way to what you're doing now. So I was, um, yeah, like I said, I was super passionate about Bitcoin.com, uh, about Bitcoin. Um, I had experienced Bitcoin as a peer-to-peer -peer exchange, means of exchange of value and goods, right? Um I really enjoyed the fact that I could send money to anyone around the world permissionlessly, instantaneously, and for free. And from behind my computer screen, right? From my seat, without having to get up, go somewhere, knock on a door, wait in line, and get access to my funds. And so that's what really got me into this. And then Bitcoin was the only solution that made that possible at the time. Um, and as a result, when Bitcoin started to become a bit slow, expensive to do remittance, remember, it grew up to maybe $100 to send funds around the world. And if I'm only sending $1 or $2 to you on the other end of the world, the $100 doesn't add up. And so I felt mm -hmm. that there was a huge discrepancy there. And that's sort of when, you know, sort of the new ideas started popping up. We needed new networks. We needed different to change it. Ethereum started popping up. Bitcoin Cash, you know, Bitcoin was talking about increasing the block size um, and as, as one of the concepts in order to accelerate the transactions and bring the transaction costs down. And that's when there was a fork in uh, a decision to fork Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash um, you know, neither here nor there. What I'm seeing, if you look at history, whether it's good or bad, doesn't matter. What history is showing us is that as soon as a network cost, a network starts to clog up, so it gets too slow or gets expensive, there tends to be a fork that happens. You're seeing that same happen in Ethereum. When it started getting too expensive, you saw these layer twos pop up. You saw EVM start getting deployed. Um, you see whole new ecosystems looking for scalable solutions pop up, etc. So this always happens. It's something consistent. And that, again, highlights the fact that the world needs a multi-chain environment. Um, coming back to sort of me and where did that lead? I, in that, in that period, around that period, I met with Roger Veer. Um, and Roger Veer is a um, unique character. Um, and we hit it off. Uh, we shared a lot of the same beliefs. Um, you know, 
And well, you know, I would say we were both true believers in the peer-to-peer electronic cash system. And so that's when I decided to join Bitcoin.com. And we said, look, if I can do three deals in three months, um, then let's see that as a success and, um, you know, help move um, the Bitcoin.com needle in a more commercial um, practice. And I did three deals in one month. And we then sort of cemented our relationship very quickly into becoming the CEO of Bitcoin.com. And yeah, had an amazing journey. We had some great team members there, super committed. We grew the business to about 130 people. Uh, We had different operations. Uh, We were global. Uh, We had a really strong community around the world. We were interacting with those communities on a regular basis. Every single month, we had ambassadors. We had um, yeah, people managing the relationship with the ambassadors. Uh, we grew the wallet from, we reinvented the whole wallet. And by the way, these are non-custodial solutions built on the Bitcoin protocol that had one difference or a couple of differences from the Bitcoin core. It had a bigger block size, so we could do faster transactions. And we had certain improvements on the code from the developer community. Um, That was the core developer community that was working on the Bitcoin Cash protocol at the time. And so we then just uh, leveraged those capabilities and passed on our requirements to those core developers. Uh, How can we get faster finality? Because if we want to make a peer-to-peer electronic cash system, we needed to be able to pay merchants. In order to pay merchants, we needed to make sure we were 10x better than the existing solutions. In order to do that, we needed extremely fast finality and low fees. And so we were really building that out. And that's where, you know, at Bitcoin.com, we all shared that mission and we had that mantra to make that possible. Um, And so that's really what we were scaling Um, And we had a really big team to do that. We needed merchants and we needed users. And so we were growing a great wallet with great user experience, all non-custodial, by the way, and trying to do the same with merchants, allowing them to accept payment in cryptocurrencies. Um, And in that time, it was really Bitcoin Cash was the only currency. I guess my learning from that was we were using Bitcoin Cash as the currency. And so how do we bring a stable coin onto the Bitcoin Cash ecosystem? Because I underestimated the value and that user experience that stable coins brought to the whole ecosystem. And um, today I really appreciate the value of a flat coin or a stable coin. And yeah, that's um, one of the big learnings. Um, and how do we make stable coins or flat coins as the means of payment and settlement between all the different parties. Right. Anyway, that was, I don't know that that answers the question, but that was sort of my time in run up to Bitcoin.com through Bitcoin.com and COVID then hit and then that changed everything. (laughs) Well, that's, that's actually a really good segue because, um, with your background, uh, where you've worked, where you where you've grown up, how you moved, and with the the inevitable decentralization of teams, especially in the space that uh, we work in, and how it's been accelerated with um, with COVID, 
with people working at home, etc. What's your philosophy when you're thinking of leading decentralized teams? What is what? What do you think is the best way to deal with decentralized decentralized teams? So, decentralized teams. You know, I've always been a remote worker. I've always been a citizen of the globe. So, a generation G, uh, as I call it. And so, as a result, I always have understood what it means to be on the other end of the phone in another part of the planet whilst everybody else was in a conference room and you're speaking, they're speaking into a speakerphone. I always sort of understood what that meant and how important is it for you in the participants in a room to try and include the participants that are remote um, to make sure you feel a level of connectivity, an emotional level of connectivity with the team that's sitting together in person versus the remote. Um, that's sort of how it always started. You had a headquarters and then you had the remote workers that were out there in the field reporting back to the headquarter. Um, over time, that changed. And I think really what Bitcoin did was change that dynamic. How? There was not enough talent and the community was very you know, dispersed in terms of their passion into Bitcoin, their understanding of Bitcoin, and their commitment to Bitcoin. And that was the thing that held the community together. It doesn't matter where you were, what race you were, uh, what, what sex you were, uh, what religion, what culture your background was, none of that mattered. What brought everybody together was the common sort of thread was Bitcoin. And it didn't matter where you were around the world because there was nobody in my neighborhood, in physical neighborhood, that was actually as committed to Bitcoin as the other people around the world connected via the internet. And so that really grew into working on a decentralized basis with counterparts and being able to build technology together. I'm not saying that that wasn't already happening before with open source software solutions, with uh, other different projects. So this was not a brand new concept. It was just reinforced during the Bitcoin days. And as a result, also other crypto days. And there would be times where we needed to come together and these would be around bigger events. And so that's why you see the crypto community come together around core festivals, I'll call them festivals because I think they are festivals, where we've been talking to each other, working through day and night um, on Zoom calls, on um, you know, chats, in chat rooms, on board room, on, on uh, bulletin boards, etc. All of that chat then culminates in actually meeting in person at a specific event, which then reinforces, you know, somebody said to me, it's I'm meeting my best friend for the first time. And so just that's sort of a lot of a very different perspective in terms of how how it all works and comes together. But that's what's remote working. And, you know, we're a team now at Laguna of about 50 people. Uh, we're all pretty much very dispersed, uh, different countries, different geographies. How do you manage that? How do you bring a culture together? How do you get commitment and include and give everybody the feeling of inclusion throughout that period of time uh, when you're working, when you're going through hardship, 
when there's big change in the market, when there's new regulation coming down on the market, when the market implodes, when the market expands, to keep focus and to keep continuing to build is, is very challenging. But there are ways to do so. And my feeling is it's always about communication. How do we stay open? How do we be transparent? How do we communicate honestly? And how do we be as direct as we possibly can in that interaction? There's no good or bad. There's just trying to state and stay close to the facts as much as possible. I think in a working relationship over time, you begin to know each other. You see under people's hoods. You get under their skin. You learn about each other. And as a result, you begin to like each other. You may hate each other as well, but that's less <laughs> likely the case, particularly not in an early and expanding market, because you need to trust other participants in that expansion to be able to do and rely on them to do the job. Um, and so how do you ensure strong communication throughout that period of time? Because that strong communication really connects people and mitigates and avoids um, miscommunication. Because that's the biggest thing. If you miss a time zone and you have miscommunication, people can be going in the opposite directions, and then it's very hard to bring them back together. Um, and so we invest a lot in communicating with the various team members, with the various projects. Because think about it. If you're in a physical building, you go into the office, you chat with each other by the water cooler, by the coffee machine, you bump into each other in the hallway, walking from one meeting to the next. You then go to the cafeteria, you sit down next to each other, you have lunch with other people, you go back to work, you then go to the gym together on the way to the gym. So you're meeting your colleagues all the time and you're bumping into them. How do you replicate that in a virtual environment? And that's as much as um, trying to do that. And if you need to spend one to two hours a day on a Zoom call communicating around that, then so be it. That's what we need to do. It almost sounds like you have to replace what's usually organic, all these interactions in the office with an extra effort to communicate when yes. uh, you're all uh, distance. It's kind, it's kind of like the blockchain in the end. You have blocks. They have to communicate together to make it work. Exactly. And you have to know the history of the blockchains, right? I have to know the block height, right? So I have to know that all these blocks, this is all the transaction history in that block, and somebody's keeping it accurate. And if there's been no change in there, all good. If there is a change in there, shit, we need to update all the blocks in front of that, right? And, and, and sort of update everything then. All right. So yeah, uh, bring it back around to the podcast. The podcast yeah. is called Super, Super Excited. Yes. Why is that? I'm super excited. Look, I think this is the best time to be alive. Why? Because there is the most change happening right now. And because there is so much change happening, there is so much opportunity. And a large portion of the change that is happening is thanks to technology, connectivity, and uh, those and the exchange of programmable money. The fact that we have those three elements now together in real time is really enabling this innovation at a scale that we haven't seen before. And that's why I think this is the most exciting time to be alive. 
there's a lot of change happening, which creates a lot of nervousness amongst given participants in the ecosystem or in any given economy. But change is an opportunity. We have a whole new set of jobs coming align. We have new generations that are very savvy in using these tools. Um, we have a new way of thinking um, on terms of how we connect with each other, how we communicate with each other. Um, and we are getting new tools all the time. And I love the fact that because of this new frontier, we are being presented with an opportunity to innovate outside of the boundaries of laws, regulations, you know, restrictions, limitations, etc. Where the world is limitless in an internet metaverse environment where exchange of value can happen instantaneously on a peer-to-peer -peer basis. And I think that is the most, this is the most exciting time to be alive if you're willing to go that extra mile, learn about crypto. I know so many people that have really created wealth, have earned and changed their whole life attitude and living and their means of living as a result of COVID that forced it upon us, but also the opportunity that Bitcoin, the internet uh, has presented to everybody. And from your people that have been helping us clean the office, do the, the, the dishes in the office, she has now got a Bitcoin wallet. She's investing. She understands DeFi, fluent in Chinese, doesn't speak a word of English, but she knows how to do that. I have a personal trainer who worked from the gym, is now old Mr. DeFi, knows more about the protocols across the 27 different chains that are out there with the 19,000 tokens out there than I do myself, who's immersed in this space, building and been working through this since 2012. Those are just one or two examples. And I can give you a slew of other examples. One of our, one of our team members that just joined two years ago knew nothing about crypto. And I, I got him into a MetaMask wallet. Bang. Next thing you know, he's the lead on a NFT project that is one of the top five, 10 NFT projects in the world out there today. And so how do you go from, you know, in basically nothing in a two to three year time frame to actually being super knowledgeable, very immersed in this space? Um, that, that opportunity doesn't present itself every day and within such a short time frame. Um, and yeah, I just think that that's why I get excited and I'm sure you can feel that excitement <laughs> in my voice when I'm talking now. <laughs> of course. And we, we've been recording this podcast for a few episodes already and yeah. it appears that you sound excited every time you speak with those people, but those people that speak with you, all the guests are really excited about the space as well. So it's very contagious. It is contagious. And uh, so to conclude, what are a couple of objectives that you have with the podcast? What, what do you hope that people can take out of it? So I hope people learn and get different perspectives from the podcast, right? I want to present a broad base of opinions uh, in the podcast and go a bit deeper and, and, and try to be honest with no objective, no agenda behind the podcast. Although I will 
openly admit that I do have an agenda. And that agenda is to provide content that is going to be appealing to a user base, but also be able to have a user base that is interested in the content that we're creating and ultimately be able to connect directly to the user base versus having to go through intermediaries to connect to a user base. Um, I think that the platforms today, like YouTube, Twitter, and all other social media platforms, open up and provide individuals the opportunity to have a direct message with their users um, or with people, with the people. And how do we have that connection with the people? How do we build that up? And I think that's really one of the reasons why I'm building up this podcast and, and working on Super Excited because I want to connect with the people directly and without having to go through middlemen. That's sort of my selfish interest behind it. Um, but hopefully I find that people, you know, people find it interesting, entertaining, a different perspective uh, from people that um, have a strong opinion and have spent a strong a significant amount of time in a specific vertical on a specific topic. And we're not driven by, oh, you only have two seconds left to say a quick statement. Go, 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 gone. <laughs> right? We, I want to be able to go deeper into a perspective and have a broader picture versus just a limited soundbite or clickbait or um, anything like that, but more depth to it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Stefan. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. I hope this episode helped you have a better idea of who your host is, Stefan Roost. And thank you very much for listening to Super Excited. <laughs>